when I was a kid, I was on the school bus one day, and you know, you, you've always got that, that one kid in high school that's just a jerk, you know, you, yeah, every one of you have got names going through your head right now, I mean, they're just, they're, they're aggravating, they're mean, they have complete disregard for everybody else, and it's just, they're just hard to get along with. Well, we had one of those particular kids, okay, his name was Robbie, and uh, he was just an aggravation all the time. And one morning, we were on the school bus, and somebody said, you know, we were having revival at our church, and Robbie came forward last night and gave his life to Jesus. And everybody was kind of shocked. And this one girl, who happened to be a part of my youth group at my church, made this comment in her best southeastern Kentucky dialect. She says, well, it ain't going to change him none. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I didn't say anything, but my thought was, how weak is your God that you believe that he can't change somebody? <laughs> I mean, if he legitimately came forward to give his life to Jesus, you bet it's going to change him. It's going to radically change him <laughs> because that's the kind of God that we have. We have a Jesus that overcomes sin, regardless of what our sin may be. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how bad it is, how aggravating it may be to somebody else. Jesus overcomes our sin if we are willing to just hand that over to him. But we oftentimes have the idea that, you know, because that person is like that, and because of the things that they've done, well, you know, that's not going to change. And listen, sometimes we get that about ourselves, don't we? Sometimes we have trouble forgiving ourselves. We think, yeah, I know God forgives sin, but... And then you go on to explain what it is you've done. Listen, Jesus is over sin. Whatever your sin may be, whatever somebody else's sin may be, Jesus is over sin. He has the power over that sin. I think that there's somebody in the Bible, probably several examples in the Bible, but there's specifically somebody in the Bible that I think other people had this idea that it may not be real, it may not be authentic, it may not be genuine. <laughs> Because of who this person was, and this guy's name, is we commonly know him as Paul, sometimes referred to as Saul. Now, his name wasn't changed when he became a Christian. It's just typically in a Hebrew context, they referred to him as Saul. In a Greek context, they referred to him as Paul. Same person, Saul and Paul. Not to be confused with the Saul of the Old Testament. That was many years earlier. <laughs> Saul and Paul that we read about in the New Testament is the same person. And now Saul was fervently against the church. Anything that had to do with the church or following Jesus or oftentimes how the church was referred to at this time as the way. That was kind of a label that was put on us in the New Testament. And he was doing everything that he could to stop the way to stop it in its tracks, to kill it out. 
He was persecuting them. He was arresting them and taking them back to the authorities. He was even, we even read where, where Paul was holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen and eventually stoned him to death. I mean, Paul did not want this Jesus movement to continue on. And he was doing whatever he could to make sure it ended. Now, Paul realized didn't think that he was doing wrong. He thought he was doing right. How many of you realize sometimes we're doing wrong and we think we're doing right? Yeah, we're sinning and don't even know it. <clears throat> and that was Paul's situation. He was sinning and he did not even know it until it was shown to him. Now Paul, in his attempt to stop this whole movement known as the church as the way had gotten the decree to go to Damascus and arrest all those that were a part of the way there and take them back to Jerusalem. But on his way to Damascus, something happened. Maybe some of you have heard about this. But we're going to read about it. We're going to spend all of our time in Acts chapter 9 today because we're going to focus on Paul and what Paul's experience plus other people's attitudes toward Paul as a result of his experience. <laughs> so we're going to pick up here in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city. And you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So Paul is on his way to Damascus. He's there to arrest people who are followers of Jesus, who are part of the church, part of this thing called the way, bring them back to Jerusalem, and who knows what's going to happen to them back there. And on his way, the light of Jesus shines around him so brightly that it blinds him, at least for a period of time, for a few days. There's an old bluegrass gospel song that says, and it's in reference to this story, it says, I could see much better since he struck me blind. A powerful line. It's a powerful line. Listen, sometimes we've got to be blinded by the light in order to see the wrong that we're doing. Because like Paul, we could, be, we could be doing something thinking it's the right thing to do when it's really the wrong thing to do. And Paul came to this realization. But we're going to find that Paul had an encounter with with in three different encounters where people weren't real sure if this was real. 
And we're going to find that first encounter in verses 10 through 19. It says this. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. <laughs> so the Lord appears to Ananias. And he goes, Ananias, this guy named Saul is at this house. And he's had a vision that somebody named Ananias is going to come and pray with him and baptize him. And you're the guy. you got to go to the, 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 he's He's come to Jesus. And Ananias is kind of like, are you sure, Lord? Are you confident about this? I mean, I've heard stories. I know all about this guy. He has persecuted the church. He's doing everything to stop the church, to stop this whole Jesus movement thing. Are you real sure? You know, it's, it's as if Ananias is, is hearing, okay, Saul has had this experience. Saul meets Jesus. Saul comes to Jesus. And Ananias is going, what? Him? No way. <laughs> not this guy. Not this guy. I could believe it about that guy or that guy, but not this guy i have heard all about him this cannot be genuine and the lord reassures him that it is and ananias goes and ministers to paul and he baptizes paul and of course we know hindsight all that paul did his missionary journeys the books that he had has written and all this and Ananias at first was not sure. Listen, sometimes we get that way, don't we? When we hear about somebody, it's, it's like that little boy Robbie when I was in high school. We hear about somebody coming to Jesus and we're like, what? I, I know this guy. I know that girl. Are you sure? They're not the church going type. I'm not real sure this is really happening. You know, most of you know that I am a, uh, I'm a Bob Dylan fan. <laughs> Bob Dylan grew up in a Jewish home, was raised part of the time at least in, in a Jewish school who does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, by the way. In the 60s, he became a part of that countercultural 
movement was considered by many to be one of the leaders of of that that whole revolution um, which may have had some good aspects to it I mean let's be honest but also had some bad aspects to it as well let's be honest <laughs> um, although Bob Dylan says he never did drugs he did smoke a lot of marijuana and his 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 defense for that was is that marijuana was not a drug. It's a mind bender, and everybody needed their mind bent every now and then. So um, whether that reasoning makes any sense or not, I don't know. You may not know this, that Bob Dylan is actually the one who introduced the Beatles to marijuana. Yeah. So, you know, some of those, that's what happened to him. Yeah, that's why they that's why they went from, you know, um, I want to hold your hand to hey Jude kind of thing. <laughs> How many songs we wouldn't have if it were not for Bob Dylan. So Bob Dylan was a part of this whole culture and far away from God and and, and all of this. <laughs> but in the late 70s through several different experiences of people that had had, had influence in his life one of them being Keith Green who was a Christian um, contemporary um, musician at this time Bob Dylan began to look at this Christian thing began to look into Jesus and he he describes his experience like this in, in the midst of all this he says one night he was sitting in his hotel while he was on tour and he says it's as if Jesus came up and tapped him on the shoulder and when he turned around, Jesus said, are you going to follow me? And Bob Dylan says, sure, why not? And everything changed for Bob Dylan at that point. And you may not know this, but Bob Dylan at that point dropped doing all his other songs and only did Christian music. Yeah. For about three years, all he did was Christian music. People were coming to his concerts to hear Blowing in the Wind and Like a Rolling Stone and, and all these songs. And all he did was this new Christian music and they began to boo him. They were throwing things on the stage. He would preach in between songs about Jesus. And even people in the church were like, what? Him? No way! <laughs> I mean, I know who Bob Dylan is. This can't be real. This can't be genuine. This, this, is, this is a fluke. No, this didn't really happen. But for three years, that's all he did was Christian music. He went through a, a Bible training course with the Vineyard Church out in California. I mean, he was all in with this stuff. But his fans, other artists, and even some in the church doubted it they said what him no way this can't be real and eventually he began to drift from the faith he's dabbled a lot in other types of spirituality and other types of faith and stuff like that where he is now i'm not real sure to be honest with you i know there's a lot of fruit that he's producing that is not fruit that christians ought to be producing okay and I've often wondered, <laughs> would that have played out differently if people would have been more accepting of his decision to follow Jesus? I think maybe it would have. But we often look with a skeptical eye. 
when somebody comes to Jesus that doesn't fit within those boundaries that we think ought to be a follower of Jesus. Remember we talked about that last week, those boundaries that we have. When it's not about the boundaries, it's about the change that has taken place at the core. I think Paul experienced this. Not only with Ananias, but here in a minute we're going to see with another group that just wasn't sure that this was real. We're going to pick up this story in, um, in verse 19, the second part of verse 19 verse, through 22. It says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoner to the chief priest? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. (laughs) Even the Jews were baffled by this. They were going, What? Him? No way! No way! He's on our side! This can't be true. This can't be real. He can't be genuine in all of this. Because we know Paul. Paul was the most fervent persecutor of the church. I mean, he was the one that everybody else was following his example. This can't be real. Because people just have trouble believing that Jesus really is over sin. Yeah, we believe it here. We have trouble believing it here. We have trouble with other people's sin. We even have trouble with our own sin of believing that Jesus really can conquer all of that. How many of you recognize this picture? You remember that guy? Yeah, Jeffrey Dahmer. (laughs) From the late 70s to the early 90s. Went on a spree, killing many, many people, dismembering their bodies, and many other grotesque things that we won't even go into. He was eventually caught and was sentenced to several life sentences in prison. And while in prison, There was a Church of Christ minister that had a prison ministry there (laughs) that began to talk and minister with Jeffrey Dahmer. And over a period of time, Jeffrey Dahmer gave his life to Jesus and was baptized. Now, many of you may not know that because the secular news media doesn't tell those stories. I was in college when this happened. And Jeffrey Dahmer was eventually murdered in prison. You probably are aware of that. (laughs) Um, But it was after he'd made his decision, obviously, to follow Jesus. And I remember when I was in college, I went to a Bible college with other people preparing for ministry and and stuff like that. Just be aware of all those in ministry. I know them at the college level, and not all of them are are great. (laughs) But on our college campus, somebody was telling us that 
Jeffrey Dahmer. It was right after he was killed. They told us that Jeffrey Dahmer had been killed. And they also told us that he had, before this happened, had given his life to Jesus and was baptized. I had heard that before. The friend of mine that was with me had not heard that he would, had come to Jesus. And when he heard this, he heard that he had, had been murdered, and he also heard that he'd come to Jesus at the same time. My friend just thought for a second, and then he looked up and he said these words. He says, well, he still got what he deserved. And you know what? <clears throat> Maybe he did. I'm not arguing that. What concerns me that from somebody who is a follower of Jesus and preparing for ministry that when they hear about a man being killed at the same time they hear about a man the same man deciding to follow Jesus and being baptized that his first comment is well he still got what he deserved that bothers me because I my my first reaction was praise the Lord Praise the Lord. His life was changed. His eternity was changed. Regardless of what happened to him in prison. And you know the irony of all this? One day my friend, if he stays committed to Jesus, is going to have to spend eternity in heaven with Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. But our reaction should be when somebody comes to Jesus, it should not be, what? Him? No way! It should be, man, this is awesome, this is great news, regardless of what they've done in their past. Listen, if Jesus can save Jeffrey Dahmer, he can save anybody. Jesus is over sin. He has power over sin. He has the power to overcome sin. And that is a great example of it. And I am looking forward to the day when I get to go to heaven. And I'll get to meet this guy. You know the one thing that, 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 that I think about in the midst of all that? Imagine the number of people's lives who have been saved if somebody would have shared Jesus with Jeffrey Dahmer sooner. That's where my heart goes. Not, well, he got what he deserved. My heart goes, man, how much life his would have, how much his life would have been different and the lives of several other people would have been different if he had met Jesus sooner. There's one more group in this story in Acts 9 that had doubts as to whether Paul was really following Jesus or not. We pick this up in verse 26 verse, uh, through 30. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. 
He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Even the church in Jerusalem, which is really kind of the church that all the other churches look to as an example, even the church at Jerusalem did not want to accept Paul. They were like, what? Him? No way. Not this guy. We don't believe he's really a disciple. If it had not been for Barnabas, and realize Barnabas is a nickname. Barnabas' real name was Joseph. But he was called Barnabas because that name means son of encouragement. He was an encourager. If it had not been for this encourager, Barnabas, half of the book of Acts may have been much different because we may have never heard of Paul. Thirteen books in the New Testament may not be there because Paul wrote those books if it had not been for Barnabas. Because the church was looking at Paul going, what? Him? No way. And Barnabas was the one that stepped up and convinced him that it was real. And the rest, they say, is history. <laughs> became the greatest missionary known to man. I have a cousin. His name is Stephen Prophet. <laughs> Stephen grew up in, in California, lives in Kentucky now. This is him. Stephen got tangled up with some bad people <laughs> that led him in a bad direction. And he got involved with dealing drugs, and he was, I mean, he was kind of high up in that. He was dealing in illegal guns and distributing illegal guns. What he didn't know is that for several months, the authorities were watching him. They got tipped off, and they were watching. And they had aerial photography of him making deals and stuff like that and everything. And eventually, they, they arrested him. And between his arrest and his sentencing, and he eventually got 10 years for his crimes. He got out after seven and a half, but he was sentenced to 10 years. <laughs> but during his, between his arrest and his sentencing, several people visited him in jail, prayed with him, shared the gospel with him. I was one of them. I got the opportunity to be able to do that. He was in Kentucky by this point. <laughs> and through that influence, he eventually gave his life to Jesus. Now, many of us had talked to him about Jesus before, and he didn't want to hear it. He wasn't mean about it, but he was like, yeah, church is your thing. It's not my thing. I've got my thing. And he never really wanted to hear it. Sometimes our life circumstances will change what we listen to. And that's what happened with Stephen. And before he was sentenced, he was able to, to, to get out of jail for a few days. And we went to this place in Kentucky. It's called Laurel Lake. It's where everybody does their fishing and stuff. We went down in Laurel Lake. We don't have the sound or the ocean in, in Kentucky. Laurel Lake's the best we got. But we went down there, and he was baptized. 
and his life changed. But you know what? People looked at that and go, well, we'll see. We'll just see. Once he gets in the prison, that this may change. And some people were thinking, maybe he's just doing this to try to get a lighter sentence or something like that. But listen, once he got into prison, he grew. He grew. He got involved in prison ministry. He became um, one of the leaders of the small groups that they would develop within the prison. Whenever I would go and visit him, all he wanted to talk about was Jesus. It changed his life. It changed his whole perspective. He smiled more. He was happier. And about halfway through his sentence, I was visiting him one day. And we were talking. He was talking about Jesus, talking about all the things that were going on in the prison ministry, talking about the inmates that, that he was having influence with and their decision to follow Jesus and stuff. And he looked at me with this big smile on his face. And he goes, you know what, Tommy? I'm here in the middle of this prison, but I have more freedom than I've ever had in my life. That's a life that Jesus changed. People looked at Stephen when he first made his decision, and they go, what? Him? No way. But it was real. And it's still, he's been out now for 10, 15 years, something like that now. He's still following Jesus. He still loves Jesus. And it's amazing. I shared with somebody earlier, I didn't share in the sermon from the, from the previous uh, service. But one of the times when I visited my cousin Stephen in prison, and all he was talking about was Jesus, man. It was like, I'm like, how you doing? Oh, the Lord's blessing me. And it was just, just went into it. And it, it was about two hours from our house. And so as I was driving home, I was just thinking about our conversation and stuff. And I got home to Tammy, and, and she was asking me how he was doing and stuff like that. And I looked at my wife, and this is what I said. I said, he has passed me up. He has passed me up. His growth has gone beyond mine. And I, that conversation, I wasn't necessarily the one ministering to Stephen. Stephen was ministering to me. And he began to have that influence on me. You know what that is? That's Jesus over sin. That's what it is. Regardless of what the sin is, <laughs> Jesus has the power to overcome that sin. You know, sometimes we get so comfortable in our own little churchianity niche in the world. We've got our own little holy huddle. And, you know, we don't, we don't mix it up with the world out there. They do their thing and we do our thing. And we lose sight of why the church is here. <laughs> it's to reach the Pauls, the Stephen Prophets, the Jeffrey Dahmers, the Bob Dylans of the world that are out there without Jesus. It's not all about us. It's about us doing what God has called us to do out there in the world. But we lose sight of that. We lose sight of that. I had, a, I had a professor in college. His name was Stan McDaniel. He was always getting in trouble with the administration with just things that he said because uh, he just spoke his mind. He was that kind of guy. <laughs> and one time in a chapel service, when all the students of, of this Bible, conservative Bible college, was, was in this chapel service, and he was talking, and he was talking, he was talking about this very thing, about how we get comfortable in our churches and our own little niches. 
And he said, you know, about every 20 years, we ought to take all the churches and get them together and blow them up and then start all over. You can understand why he got in trouble from time to time, right? But if we think about it, I think we can understand where he's coming from. Because churches go through these life cycles oftentimes. And, and when they, they first get started, man, they are all about reaching the community. That's why they're there. There's this small group of people that have a passion about Jesus changing the lives of people in their community. But eventually it begins, it doesn't happen everywhere, but often places they begin to morph into this group that puts up walls not just these walls, but symbolic walls between them and the world. And we lose sight of why, why we even started. It's to reach the people who have so much sin in their life that they think that's all their life is. John Ortberg tells a story of a guy who came into a church that was trying to change that focus from being inward focused to being outward focused. And, and he was talking about some, some things they could do different, some transitions that they can make within their church. And, and in the middle of this, one guy from the church stood up and he goes, but what if we just want to be more of a, of a churchy type of church? And John Hortberg said this guy got a little indignant at this point. And he looked at him and he goes, so there's a church like that on every corner. But what church... What church is going to reach the whiskey-guzzling, pot-smoking, porno-watching, woman-chasing, wild-living SOB? And John Oatberg says everybody got quiet at that point because people didn't talk like that in that church. <laughs> Until eventually one guy raised his hand and said, You mean sons of Baptist?" listen there's a churchy church on every corner even on Long Island okay there's even more of them in Kentucky but even on Long Island there's a churchy kind of church it's for the churchy kind of people that are into the churchy kind of thing let's be a church that is reaching the people that those churches are not reaching let's reach those people with the gospel they need to know that it's not just an intellectual belief, but that it's a, it's a transforming belief within our very being that Jesus overcomes sin. <laughs> There's approximately 13,000 people just in Glen Cove who do not know Jesus. That's not counting Seacliff, Locust Valley, and the surrounding areas. It's just in Glen Cove that churches are not reaching. Let's reach those people. Let's reach those people. It's the Jeffrey Dahmers, the Bob Dylans, the Stephen Prophets, the Pauls of our community. Let's reach those people. Because you know what happens when we realize that Jesus is over sin and we are reaching those people that have that sin in their lives? I think the same thing will happen here that happened in the church in the book of Acts when they overcame those prejudices as well. Look at Acts chapter 9, verse 31. I think this kind of brings a conclusion to this story with Paul. <laughs> then, after all this happened, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. Anybody here like a little bit more peace in their life? 
Yeah. God strengthened the church. When they were willing to put away their prejudices, God strengthened that church. And its life was marked by reverence for the Lord. They worshiped and lifted up God. They were encouraged by the Holy Spirit. And the church continued to grow in numbers. When people realize that there's people in the church that love them, they begin to believe that maybe, just maybe, God loves them too. But if they think that the church is just there to judge them, then they believe that God is just there to judge them too. Let's switch that. Let's flip that switch and become a people that is going beyond those prejudices. And instead, when somebody comes to Jesus, instead of us going, what? Him? No way. Let us say this. What? Him? All right. What? Her? All right. Because that's the kind of church I want to be. Not a judgmental church. It's one of them to sit back and say, well, let's just see if this is legitimate. Let's let them prove themselves before we embrace them with our love and our grace. You know, what a contradiction of what we're supposed to be as a church. <laughs> embrace them. And you know what? They still may have struggles. And if they do, let's embrace them in the midst of those struggles and help them in the midst of those struggles. Because you know what? I've got struggles. You've got struggles. We've all got struggles. Let's just struggle together. Let's help each other along. Don't be judgmental. Let's just help each other with our struggles. And we will be strengthened by God. We will be encouraged by the Holy Spirit. And we will grow in numbers as we experience the peace that comes only from radically following Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being the God that you are. We thank you so much that you sent Jesus to overcome our sin. God, help us to not become so self-centered that we forget about the fact that you can overcome other people's sin as well. God, help us to continually be loving, to be reaching out, to be sharing with other people, not in a judgmental way, but in a loving way where they realize how much of a loving God you truly are. God, help us to switch our, our thinking from what? Him? No way. To what? Him? All right. And let us celebrate with those that make decisions to follow Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.